0: Hello and welcome to the Maryland Chatters podcast. I'm your host, Danielle Gaines. Marylander Tom Perez has been the head of the Democratic National Committee since 2017, and his term will soon expire. After the party united to elect Joe Biden this fall, we talked to Perez about the party's future, its successes during his term, and the ground that Democrats lost in the U.S. House and other down-ballot races this fall. In an interview with Maryland Matters reporter Bennett LaCrone last week, Perez says he's taking a long view of how the Democratic Party is doing, and the election of Biden, coupled with the Democratic governors elected during his term, means the party has a bright future. We also talk to Perez about his own future once his term at the DNC ends in a couple of months. Later in the podcast, we catch up with a former Maryland lawmaker at his Christmas tree farm. First, Bennett's conversation with Tom Perez.
1: Chairman Perez, thank you for joining us today.
2: Great to be with you and all your listeners, Bennett, and happy holidays to everybody. Thank
1: you. So, first question you know, now that the Electoral College has confirmed President elect Joe Biden's victory, I wanted to get your final thoughts on the 2020 election. Despite Biden's victory, Democrats lost some ground in the House. What do you think Democrats can learn from this election going forward?
2: Well, I tend to take a long view of this, Bennett, now that I've uh, completed almost four years of uh, tenure as DNC chair. You know, four years ago, Uh, When I got here, we had 15 Democratic governors. We now have 24. Uh, We didn't have the U.S. House. We now have the House. We have flipped uh, roughly 400 seats in state legislatures from red to blue. Eight chambers flipped from red to blue, including our neighbors in Virginia. When I took over, there were 66 Republicans in the Virginia House of Delegates and 34 Democrats. There are now 55 and four, 55 Democrats and 45 Republicans. We have the state Senate and we have the governorship. And that makes a real difference. And then the biggest prize of all, Bennett, is the presidency. If you go back to 1900, about once a quarter century, you uh, you defeat uh, an incumbent president. and And we've never done it in the world of misinformation at scale, foreign interference. Um, And so I'm really proud of what we've been able to accomplish. Donald Trump is the most dangerous president in American history. And I hope 100 years from now, there won't be anyone worse than Donald Trump because it's hard to imagine that. And so this victory was remarkable. And uh, were there seats I wanted to win in uh, down-ballot races? Absolutely. Uh, In 2016, when Donald Trump uh, won the presidency, you know. We picked up seats in the House and in the Senate. Uh, in 2020, we picked up, um, you know, some seats in the in the Senate. Uh, we lost seats in the House, and we're going to study what happened. Uh, and uh, in 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 a number of those seats, we already know what happened. Um, we were defending districts that were pretty heavily Trump districts. If you look at wave House elections. Uh, for instance, uh, you look at 2010 when we got our butts kicked in uh, in the U.S. House. In 2012, we won a number of seats back, and that's because they won seats in districts that uh, were Democratic-leaning districts, and we were able to win those back in the uh, presidential election of 2012. Same thing happened here. I'll give you just one or two examples. In, in Oklahoma, uh, we won a seat in 2018. Kendra Horn, wonderful member of Congress. That was a Trump-plus uh, double-digit district. Sochi-Torres-Small in New Mexico. Similarly, a Trump-plus double-digit district. We won both those seats. Great members. And in a presidential, you have a bigger turnout. A lot of the Trump voters came out. And and that's why uh, we lost those two seats. And so we've got more work to do. There's no doubt about it. And um, I think having the White House is going to enable us uh, to demonstrate that we actually know how to handle uh, the coronavirus, we know how to build back our economy, we know how to uh, restore normalcy in in this country, because um, this president has just absolutely obliterated uh, the guardrails of, of democracy. And, and so I'm thrilled that uh, this presidency is uh, a month away from ending, that is so important not only for marylanders but for folks all across this country
1: as you mentioned the democratic party unified in many ways during donald trump's presidency how can the party remain united going forward
2: by fighting for the issues that matter most to people i mean right now uh we are still in the midst of a pandemic and we have a president who's asleep at the switch. I mean, look at what's happening right now. We 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 have two different vaccines that have been approved. The White House should be out there saying to people, these are safe. We should be building trust in the process of vaccination because vaccines are great. But until you have a vaccination and the delivery of that, uh, people are still going to be in harm's way. And so what I'm looking forward to with the Biden Uh, Harris administration, is professionals at the helm so that we can actually um, make the progress we need to make in bringing an end to this uh, pandemic. And at the same time, we can't fix the economy until we've fixed the pandemic. If you go down, if you go to places like Nevada, where I spent a lot of time during the election cycle, or Florida, talk to workers at Disney, talk to workers on the strip in Las Vegas, people aren't going to go there until it's safe again. And so we can't build up those economies until we've gotten a handle on the virus. And so I think the way we're going to succeed as Democrats is by focusing on these issues. Health care. In the middle of a pandemic, you had a president who went to the Supreme Court to try to do away with the Affordable Care Act. That's nuts. And uh, having Democrats who are going to try to expand access to health care, that's what voters want. They, want. they want their leaders to have their back. They want... They, they want a leader they can be proud of. And I think Joe Biden um, is that uniter. And as we uh, accomplish things like infrastructure, raising the minimum wage, getting a handle on the coronavirus, um, making sure people have access to jobs that pay a decent wage, um, that's how I think we're going to earn the trust of voters because this president has been an abject failure at all of those things I just mentioned.
1: All eyes are on Georgia ahead of the Senate runoff in January. How are you seeing Democrats from across the country, including those from Maryland, working to get out the vote and flip the Senate?
2: Well, the energy to help in Georgia is off the charts. Uh, I'm so appreciative of Yvette Lewis, the great party chair in Maryland. She's been a, a great help. And I talked to uh, Chairwoman Lewis with regularity. Frankly, the energy from around the world, quite literally, is uh, is remarkable. I, I just did um, an event yesterday with uh, Democrats who live overseas and are eligible to vote in um, in their in where in the state where they have legal residency. Uh, there were roughly twenty thousand Democrats abroad, uh, military voters, overseas voters who voted in Georgia. And when you win by twelve thousand five hundred votes, every intervention um, makes a difference and the energy is really off the charts. We see already um, as of uh, the 17th now of uh, of December, um, over 900,000 people have voted, which is about 12% of the registered voters, uh, including about 75,000 new voters. These are folks who didn't vote on election day of this year. Uh, there's another million two ballots that are not yet returned, and, and you know people are phone banking, people are donating $10, $20, people are texting, uh, people are down there. We have um, a remarkable uh, coordinated operation down there. Uh, let me be clear, it's going to be a jump ball. Uh, I mean, this race is razor thin. Um, uh, it, it is going to be uh, just like the race that we just won in Georgia for the president-elect and it's a turnout battle making sure we bring our folks out and what's remarkable is the republican candidates for senate still haven't acknowledged joe biden's victory i mean that's that is just mind-numbing to me that you can live in your parallel factual universe and so we have to get our folks out there the difference between 48 and 50 as you know and as your listeners know very well is night and day and um we're working our tails off uh at the at the dnc and uh and with the help of people from maryland uh to make sure we get all of our voters out so if you want to help you know go to democrats.org because uh, you can do that from home i know people who are sending postcards down there uh every day everything matters and we got to make sure we have our um, folks working and and there's so much you can do right here for Maryland.
1: Mm-hmm. You mentioned issues like healthcare and the minimum wage, all of which were issues long before the pandemic, but how do you think the pandemic has sort of brought those issues into the forefront across the country?
2: Well, the the pandemic has laid bare the remarkable you know economic disparities um people who were already taking it on the chin are taking it on the chin disproportionately in the pandemic look who's suffering most women are disproportionately suffering most look at who's losing their jobs uh, you know, people who were living on the edge before the pandemic have fallen off the edge and fallen off the cliff in the aftermath of the pandemic there's so many people who are going to mark the holiday season with an empty seat at the table uh, because they've lost a loved one. And oftentimes um, that, that loved one was um, the brother in the family. Uh, I know our our, our kids, um, my my youngest just graduated from Blair High School. So all three of our kids went to Montgomery Blair High School and uh, we still get um, uh, emails from various listservs from Blair High School. And uh, the, there've been a number of uh, students that they know who have lost uh, their parents there and in, in one case there was a student who lost both a father and a mother um, it just it just tears my heart out and uh again uh, the people suffering most are the people who had the the least safety net to help them and and that's why it's so important to have a competent president uh who is leading this effort to give you some context bennett donald trump is going to be the first president since Herbert Hoover to preside over net job loss in his presidency. We haven't had that happen literally since uh, the Great Depression. Um, That is Donald Trump. He didn't cause the coronavirus, but his absolutely botched response to this coronavirus has wreaked havoc on people. And then the Republicans refuse to raise the minimum wage, they refuse. Look at how long it has taken to get um, a stimulus bill. The, the, the Democrats passed uh, the HEROES Act in, I think it was April or, or so of 2020, a long time ago, and Republicans played games. People need that stimulus check. People need expanded um, unemployment. Um, businesses need um, the, the the Paycheck Protection Act. Um, they need these critical moments here where we are helping and the, and state and local governments uh need help uh, because they are taking it on the chin they can't print money bennett <laughs> they've got to solve problems and you look at the budget crises um across uh state and local governments and it's very very real so um i just can't wait for joe biden and Kamala harris to get there so that we can really start addressing these issues income inequality is one of the defining issues of our moment and it has gotten so much worse in this pandemic
1: mm-hmm. what's next for you after your term as dnc chairs finished early next
2: year oh i don't know i'm still focused on uh, i've got georgia on my mind so i'm uh focused on making sure we sprint to the finish line there and then when uh When my term ends, it doesn't end until February, then I'm going to focus on what's next for me. I just, I feel very strongly that I want to sprint across the finish line. I inherited the DNC that was um, in turmoil. Uh, We were in debt. We had a crisis of confidence. Our brand was damaged. I'm very proud of what we've been able to build. Um, I leave a DNC that is uh, not simply not in debt now, but we actually... Uh, have paid all of our debts, and, and we are uh, not, in the, not in the red anymore. And we've built the infrastructure that's enabling candidates up and down the ticket to win. But uh, I, I want to finish the work, and that work is in Georgia right now.
1: Maryland has now elected a Republican for two terms as governor. How does the party win that seat back?
2: Well I think by focusing on issues that matter most to Marylanders and I I think um I think we can do that. Uh I mean I'm I'm hard pressed. I I I've asked a number of people recently like can you name one or two things that of, of consequence that Larry Hogan has actually accomplished and people kind of scratch their head uh can't really name anything. Oh lowered the toll on the Bay Bridge. Um, that's the one I hear most frequently. But I mean, Maryland. I, I I live in Tacoma Park, and everywhere I drive, I see the mess that was caused by the um, the, the Purple Line debacle. You know, that was clearly on his watch. I'm I'm looking at the uh, the issue with the um, with with the tests that he went and bought from South Korea. It was, I, you know, I I appreciate that he was trying to do something about. The issue at the time, but it was clearly a screw up, and then they're sweeping it under the rug. I I think Marylanders want a leader who's going to build a Maryland that works for everyone. Uh, Marylanders are looking for leadership that um, will address the issue of uh, income inequality in Maryland. That will address the issue of education. Education's a great equalizer, and I was proud to work in the O'Malley administration, where I think we were number one or number two in the nation in um in in public school uh when you look at the rankings for public schools and as a public school parent i know that's the great equalizer we need to continue to invest in our human capital Um, maryland can do so much more and i think democrats are going to be able uh, to demonstrate that in uh, 2022 i think it's really important uh, now that we have um, a democratic administration uh, to make sure we have uh, people in Maryland who are going to be able to work closely so that um, Maryland can reap the benefits of this partnership um, with uh, the Biden Harris administration.
1: So would you ever consider a run for governor?
2: Well, I, I'm only considering what we're doing in Georgia right now and I haven't thought about anything of that nature yet. so I'm gonna I'm really gonna sprint to the finish line in my job here. And then, um, and then start asking questions about what I should do next. I just, I don't think it's uh, right to, uh, when you've got unfinished business in your current job, to be looking ahead to your next job.
1: So the electoral college vote got a lot of attention this year, and it did line up with the popular vote this year. But you said previously that the popular vote alone should not determine, uh, should determine the presidency. You said it should be only the popular vote. Is that something you still stand by?
2: Yeah, I, I'm a... Uh, I'm a big believer in the national popular vote movement, and I'm proud of the fact that um, the National Popular Vote Compact, which um, for your listeners who may not be aware of it, is uh, an initiative where uh, states pass laws that say we will instruct our electors to cast their ballot for the individual that wins the national popular vote, as long as other states totaling 270 electoral votes do the same. And the state that was the first state to pass that law as part of the National Popular Vote Compact was the great state of Maryland. And um, I appreciate all the people who uh, led that effort. Uh, I think it's a great thing. And I think now states totaling um, over 200 electoral votes have now um, passed similar measures. I think the most recent state was Colorado, uh, it went to referendum and um, they affirmed it, uh, and so uh, we I, I think we should reflect the will of the people in our presidency. Uh, look, look at we've won six of the seven elections in the 21st century, um, and uh, we've gotten the presidency in four out of the seven elections in the 21st century. And there's a lot of um, uh, data showing that when you, when you um, actually have a national popular vote framework, it's going to enable states that aren't currently, quote, unquote, battlegrounds to get more attention. Because presidential candidates aren't simply going to go to Florida and Ohio and um, a, a handful of other states. They're going to pay attention everywhere. Uh, so I think the time has come. Uh, for us to move in this direction. And I've said this before, and I, I continue uh, to believe it uh, moving forward. And I think there's growing momentum for this. Um, but, uh, you know, until we take more state legislatures, and, and I get back to my point, uh, the mission of the DNC is to help elect Democrats up and down the ballot from the school board to the Oval Office. Um, the, more, the more state legislatures we win, the more governor seats we win, um, the, the more we will be able to do this. You do not have to amend the Constitution of the United States in order to um, provide for the national popular vote. You could amend the Constitution. That, that is one way to do it. But it's not the only way to accomplish this. And I think the will of the people should be heard.
1: Can you talk about your own experience as an elector?
2: Yes, uh, I remember uh, it was 2004 at the time I was serving on the Montgomery County Council and the state party chair was Ike Leggett, uh, who is uh, a, a friend and frankly a mentor of mine. And I had the privilege um, as a result of um, County Executive uh, Leggett's um Doing to um, serve in that electoral college, and it was, it was really fun. It was, it was. Um, I would describe it as anticlimactic because um, that, for those who may not recall the 2004 election, the state that everybody was watching uh, around 11 o'clock on election night was Ohio. The whole election came down to Ohio, and uh, George Bush ended up winning Ohio. Uh, if if uh, John Kerry had won Ohio, we would have won the presidency. Uh, if my memory serves me, uh, Care, uh, George W. Bush ended up with something like 285 or so electoral votes. It was, uh, I may be off by one or two, but it was a really close race. Um, uh, George Bush won by 2.4% uh, in the popular vote. And, and to give you a sense of how that compares with where we're at now, We've now had, um, I think this is the seventh election of the uh, 21st century. Um, Is that right? Um, 2004, eight, uh, maybe the sixth election in the uh, 21st century. This is the second largest margin of victory uh, in the 21st century. What Joe Biden accomplished. He's ahead by 7 million votes as opposed to uh, 3 million votes. Uh, His margin is over 5% right now. And the reason I bring this all up, Bennett, is uh, what happened on the 14th of December um, of 2020 uh, should have been a ho-hum event. It should have been ceremonial. Uh, This was not a close election. This was a decisive victory. And everyone should remind themselves of this. Um, George W. Bush got... Less electoral votes in 2000 and 2004 than what Joe Biden got. Um, When you have you have a seven million vote advantage for Joe Biden, the last president, the last presidential candidate who took out an incumbent and won this large percentage uh, percentage of the popular vote was FDR in 1932. This was decisive, and I bring this up because. Um, It's shameful what this um, president has tried to do to undermine faith in democracy. Um, This has been a real stress test on our democracy. We've won dozens and dozens and dozens of court cases, Republican judges, democratically appointed judges, doesn't matter because these lawsuits were frivolous. And and let's be very clear about what they did, Bennett. This really wasn't a legal strategy as much as it was a political strategy. They want to create a narrative of oh we've been aggrieved um, by election fraud that is bs Um, that's the most polite word i can think of uh, to describe what they have done and what you're going to see happen in states that are controlled by republicans in 2021 is they are going to take this entirely bogus narrative of aggrievement in this general election and they're going to use it to try to pass state laws to make it harder for people to vote. We should be celebrating Bennett. This is the, 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 in the middle of a pandemic, we had almost 160 million people come out and vote as a record. That's awesome. Republicans, Democrats, independents should be celebrating that. And instead, they are trying to undermine our democracy. We passed this critical stress test, but I know that in these states, that are governed by Republicans in the in the governorship, in the state houses, in the state Senate, they're going to try and do this. Why do I know this? Because I'm a voting rights lawyer. I did this stuff. And and you see these voter ID laws that were part of a false narrative in a number of other states about how there's all this fraud that's really non-existent or virtually non-existent. And they use that as an excuse. So I was proud to serve as an elector. It was it was an anticlimactic day as it should be. And, um, and it's really shameful what's gone on. Um, and, and what we should be doing at the end of the year is celebrating that in the middle of a pandemic, we were able to turn out more voters than ever in an election that was remarkably well run in the aggregate. And I applaud all those heroic elections officials, uh, who, who, um, who did it? It was it was a remarkable accomplishment. And 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 one final thought on this, Bennett. What we learned from this election is the following: when you give people options on how to vote, you can vote early, you can vote by mail, you can vote no excuse absentee, you can vote in person on election day if you want. When you give people options, more people vote. That's good for America. And. You know, Republicans won in a number of states because they came out and voted. that's that's democracy. Let's make it easier for eligible people to vote. That's what we should be doing.
1: So my final question is, you know, do you have hope that the transition and inauguration will go smoothly?
2: I do. Uh, I know the folks who are running it. Um, it. It's going to be different. I mean, I had the privilege of overseeing our Democratic National Convention. It was a very unconventional convention, but I think it was an inspirational convention nonetheless. This inauguration is going to be a very unconventional inauguration. Uh, You're not going to have hundreds of thousands of people gathering on the mall because it isn't safe. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris will follow the science. Joe Biden and Kamala Harris have assembled uh, a team, a cabinet, um, other senior leaders who reflect the diversity of America who are steeped in their areas of interest and and expertise and who are going to enable us uh, to bring america back to build back better to build back capitalism better to build back our economy better and i am confident that uh, people will be inspired by this inauguration but at the same time uh, we're not going to put folks in harm's way this vaccine is is a source of hope but we need to make sure that the vaccination process is done in an orderly fashion. And we don't want people uh, to let their guard down. The, the, there is light at the end of the tunnel, but the tunnel is still a distance away. And we we won't, we need to continue um, to uh, be mindful of that moving forward.
1: Chairman Perez, thank you so much for joining us today.
2: Pleasure to be with you, Bennett, and happy holidays to everybody.
0: Now, this is the moment in the podcast when we would ordinarily chat with editor Josh Kurtz. But instead, this week, we have a bit of a holiday gift, an audio story from our reporter Elizabeth Shui. She ventured out to Southern Maryland to catch up with Thomas McLean Mack Middleton, who represented Charles County in the Maryland Senate for 24 years. Middleton was the only full-time farmer left in the General Assembly when he was upset by Arthur Ellis in the 2018 Democratic primary. During this holiday season, Middleton and his son, Brett, have been swamped with selling Christmas trees and decorations from their farm, Middleton Manor Farms, which has been in the family since the 1660s. We had a chance last week to catch up with what he's been up to.
3: Middleton's shop is usually full of Christmas trees, centerpieces, and grave blankets. But in the week right before Christmas, there were only a handful of grave blankets and centerpieces left. Christmas trees sold out by the first week of December. He couldn't remember the last time they sold out of trees this quickly.
4: When he was unloading the trees, he sold 15 trees that day. And, uh, I, I, and you talk to people and everything you hear of the media is that, you know, with the pandemic, people are home, a lot of people are depressed. Uh, They don't see their loved ones, so they want to get in a good Christmas mood. So if you're going to buy a tree, why wait until, you know, a few days before Christmas? So a lot of people just bought early.
3: The store that Middleton is standing in was built in 1978, first as a place for customers to pick their own produce. But that market went south because of the 1970s recession. And since then, it's been a wood shop and now a little store during the Christmas season
4: you drove up and the cemeteries just decorated. I've never seen that many. And that's again, it's just uh, so many people are dying and and people start thinking about their loved ones and they're just remembering them. And then we have these uh, little ladies, they're from Rockville. They came down here and fell in love with my oldest brother and made some furniture for him and he told them about Christmas. So they started coming here and getting these cross wreath uh, uh, for the graves and over the years more would die and when we ended up i think it was like 13 and there's only one of them left now and the daughter comes down and uh, and uh, gets a purchase and my brother would have hot country sausages and put on a, uh, a roll with mustard and his eggnog his famous eggnog
3: these days around 10 to 15 customers come in to pick up their orders of centerpieces and grave blankets which are handmade evergreen arrangements to cover the ground of a grave. They take around 10 minutes to make and are made from the leaves of the bottom of Christmas trees.
4: These are called uh, grave blankets, but uh, some people use them as, uh, as wreaths. They'll take them, if you have a double set of doors and you only use one door, some people take them and hang them and put lights on them. <laughs> they look really pretty. But uh, we start out with the 36 inch uh, uh, little slat, wooden slat as you can see, and then you just, we pre-sort the bunches, have the bunches laid out. You just start at the top, put a bunch down, tie it, put a bunch over here, tie it, put a bunch over here, tie it, and you gradually work your way down. And then usually his wife, my son's wife, would do all the decorating while she's here waiting on customers, she's always, and she's very, very creative. She Takes something, makes it look very, very nice.
3: Middleton drove me around his 274 acre farm passing past old tobacco barns, cow stables, and the house he and his 13 other siblings grew up in.
4: What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna take a quick run so you can see a little bit of the farm, and then we'll end up back here at uh, my shop. And so this is the house where I was born and raised. I'm one of 14 children. <laughs> and uh, this is this, where we used to strip the tobacco. We used to raise tobacco here. that's a tobacco barn there. That's a big tobacco barn over here. There's one over at my house. So, these are the cow barns and stables. When I was a child, we didn't have tractors. We had the horses. So this one was for the horses and this one was for the cows. We used to milk cows. And uh, farms used to be pretty self-sufficient. We have a a lot of history here on the farm, both in the uh, revolutionary war this was a hot area here this was one of the original colonies maryland was and uh, the uh, original settlers came over here they discovered tobacco because the indians were raising tobacco and uh, so they start exporting the tobacco <laughs> to england and, it, and 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 the habit the smoking habit took up so it became a very very powerful crop and it has been raised from colonial times all the way up until recently, when I was in the legislature, Paris Glendinning, Governor Paris Denny, hated tobacco, hated smoking. So he did not like the fact that Maryland was contributing to cancer. So um, there was a big tobacco settlement and uh, I was in, I guess my first or second term in the Senate and I knew it was coming you know, it was just a matter of time before tobacco was going to be taxed again
3: tobacco used to be the way of life in southern maryland but by the 1990s the price of tobacco had fallen and taxes kept getting higher middleton played a significant role to get money to southern maryland after the 1998 tobacco master settlement agreement that was when attorneys general from 46 states and the four largest american tobacco companies came to an agreement to reduce tobacco production for health reasons.
4: Back in, uh, in uh, um, the late 90s, uh, the price of tobacco had fallen so much. Uh, there was a threat of, uh, of uh, more taxes on tobacco. That used to be very, very popular, just tax tobacco. And so fortunately for us, we had what was called a Tri-County Council that they put together after we lost slot machines and Southern Maryland became economically stressed, we created this council. And I happened to be uh, a a chairman of the council at the time and told everybody we need to get together, to get our act together. We needed to develop a strategic plan. We had to look at alternative agriculture. And so we got into this tobacco tax debate on the floor of the Senate. Republicans were filibustering because it was a tax, they were against it. A few of us joined with the Republicans to be part of that filibuster where it couldn't be broken, and we brokered a deal that were there to be a tobacco settlement that Southern Maryland would get part of that money to implement the strategic plan as developed by the Tri-County Council. That was the language that was in the bill. And uh, lo and behold, the following year, The following year, there was a a master settlement, whereby states were getting millions of dollars. I think Maryland got like $25 million, and part of that money was coming into, into Southern Maryland.
3: But with the decline of tobacco, agriculture in Charles County is a lot smaller today. Now many farmers are doing agritourism and producing hay, which is what Middleton is doing now.
4: There's still today there are a lot of lot of lots and lots of young families that are engaged in uh, agriculture, a lot of agritourism uh, We have uh, some of the farmers that converted to raising Christmas trees. So at Christmas time people just come and buy and they have a sled and whatnot or a horse drawn wagon where they take people out to cut their tree. We have some folks that are raising wool. We have another farmer that's doing alpaca, and they actually take the wool and have it made into sweaters and scarves and things. We have a lot of organic growers raising organic beef, organic pork, organic eggs, organic uh, 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 chickens for meat. Uh, We have uh, farmers that are doing events like weddings. People want to get married on a farm, they're doing weddings.
3: Besides farming, Charles County has seen a huge change in demographics over the last few decades. More people, especially Black communities from Prince George's County and other D.C. suburbs, began moving into Charles County for better school systems and affordable housing. Farmland was sold and quickly converted into housing developments.
4: Demographics with the the migration of African Americans, it occurred probably around uh, 2000, 2010-ish, and then after that, uh, it started to really grow. And so about 2000 and uh, I'd say around 2015, uh, the minority student population was the largest population in our our schools. And then a few years later than that, the African-American students, were over 50% of the, of the school population. And if you look where most of them came from, most of them came from Prince George's County, because if you look at that time politically, it was a time of unrest where uh, a, a, a lot of the political leaders in, in Prince George's County had given up on the public schools. There was actually legislation that sort of took over the schools So that drove that wealthy population out of Prince George's County. They've lost a lot of that population. They moved to Charles County where it was perceived the schools were better and it was a safer community.
3: When the census is finished, every expectation is that Charles County is going to emerge as the wealthiest black county in the country, something that Prince George's is currently known for. The COVID-19 pandemic has upended many economies, including farming in Charles County, especially for agritourism and cattle growers.
4: All in all, um, I think uh, a, a, lot of the, a lot of the agritourism uh, have suffered. A, a lot of them did not open up. Uh, my son bought some equipment from one of the agritourism operations. Whether or not they're going to be able to get back into the game, I don't know. I hope they have enough money reserved in order to get back into business because as soon as is over... I'm I'm expecting the economy just to go through the roof. This pent-up demand to have people, they want to get out, they want to go to a restaurant, they want to go to a movie, they want to take a trip, you know, they're going to want to come to the farm, Uh, they're going to want to go to their local, you know, know, uh, 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 farmers markets and places like that. So so I think that for those that can survive it, uh, things will get back to normal very quickly.
3: Now Middleton also works for Maryland Auto Insurance as their lobbyist. He's also the president of the Harry Hughes Center for Agroecology and a member of the Chesapeake Bay Commission. Although he's happy that he has more time to spend with his wife and seven grandchildren, there are some things that he misses about Annapolis. I,
4: what, I, what I miss is the policy piece, especially when it comes to care, you know, financial institutions, energy, uh, labor issues. Uh, I love those issues, I love the policy piece of it. I loved when you got controversial legislation and that, uh, you know, when the issue, there was this polarization, the advocates for it and the people that were opposed to it, that uh, I loved those tough issues just bringing people together, dealing with uh, an informal setting and just... uh, uh, getting to know what the facts are, what people's issues are, and finding some commonalities. And if you can find some things in common, it changes the discussion. These are things that we have in common, everybody agrees with. And then that sets up a, a whole new dynamic.
3: As a middle child in a family of 14 kids, Middleton prides himself for having played a facilitator role in Annapolis.
4: There's a quality that uh, Middleton child syndromes have you know they they're great facilitators they're in the middle and they can always try to find common ground and uh i took that to annapolis with me and i was uh, very successful as a a chairman and uh solving complex issues by just bringing people together when you take up those costs and you fight you make a difference and you know most of them don't even realize what you did but it's just the satisfaction that you know that you had the power and I don't like to use the word power, but where you were, you were able to make a difference, and uh, just because of where you were in a leadership position, and that to me was the most gratifying, most rewarding of it all, where, you know, you were given an opportunity to make a difference in people's lives.
3: Middleton's dad was an elected official for 32 years as a judge at the Orphan's Court in Charles County. His dad's last time running was Max's first time running for county commissioner, and they campaigned together.
4: He died uh, right before I became a state senator, but he knew I was going to run. And the day before he died, um, he got this burst of energy, and I, I was there talking with him, and we talked about me running for the senate. He said, "Son, you know you deal with developers and uh, and citizens' group, environmental groups here." He says, "When you get to Annapolis," You're going to have every stakeholder group that you can imagine. They're going to come after you from left and right. They're going to want this, and they're going to not want that. And and he says, just remember one thing. The most you owe any of them is what you you owe the least to, and that's a fair shake. No more, no less (laughs) than a fair shake. And and that, that was the legacy that I left behind, which I'm very, very proud of. That's my proudest legacy, actually.
3: In his 24 years in Annapolis, Middleton said one of the biggest changes he's observed in a legislature is not having Mike Miller as the Senate president anymore.
4: The biggest change of all was not having Mike Miller up at the uh, dais. <laughs> you know, Mike, the very first year I ran for office, I was county commissioner for eight years. The very first year that I ran, he became president of the Senate. When I left the legislature, I had served 32 years in politics. He was president senate during that whole entire time. You know, there, there, there will be books written about Mike Miller.
3: <laughs> senator Bill Ferguson, who is much younger, succeeded Miller as a Senate president this year. I've been
4: really impressed with, uh, with Senator Ferguson, having left the Senate. He's young. Uh, he's energetic. He's a great statesman. He listens well. He wants to make sure that people that serve in that body feel like they're part of that body. He recognizes that they represent their people; their thinking reflects how their constituents think. Um, I think he's done a good job, uh, and I think a lot that had helped him was the fact that he had he had uh, uh, Mike Miller there that was counseling him, and because uh, Mike was determined that he wanted he did not want to leave the Senate until he transitions this leadership, and he's done a great job with that.
3: But another big change he's noticed in Annapolis is not a surprising one. It's the increasing polarization he's seen during his political career.
4: You've lost so many of your moderates. And, uh, and it's because this polarization that, uh, that uh, was occurring, but it really, really intensified with this president. That, you know, it's just this big, big division. And a lot of, a lot of the moderates have either lost or retired there wasn't that much controversial issue you'd get a tax issue that you knew that that republicans were going to filibuster on, or you get a, get a social issue like abortion or same-sex marriage but other than that things went really smoothly you know just a big controversial change issues uh, that there was any uh, polarization at all but there was a, a decorum there you know i remember you know when we did the big offshore wind we, we battled that on the floor for a couple of days. And uh, after it was finished, you know, the uh, Senate Minority uh, Leader uh, uh, E.J. Pipkin took the floor and says, uh, you know, I just want to say this is finished. I've been engaged in this. This has been the way it should be, where you can debate issues and you do it in a courteous way and you have the time and the respect to do it. And it's a great body to be a part of. And, uh, and those, you know, we had a difference with how you did things. You know, we were friends. We were friends. And uh, J.P. Jennings, Steve Hirsch, some of my best friends <laughs> that are there, and Raleigh. And I talk to them all the time.
3: Maryland has lost a lot of revenue from the pandemic, and there's a lot of work ahead for the legislature, which convenes in less than a month. Middleton thinks there are some things that are going to be put on the back burner, like public education.
4: You've got the legislature ready to convene right now. It doesn't look good. It doesn't look as bad as we anticipated, but it's bad. There's, you know, the what the commitment that we had made to public education, you know, I, I think that's going to be put on hold for a while. The investment that we have made in higher education, all those things, you just see these programs getting cut and there's no, uh, there's no guarantee that we're going to get back there in the next year or so. I think once the economy rebounds, we'll gradually go back to it. But uh, it's going to be a while before we get back to normal.
0: Thank you, everyone, for listening to another episode of the Maryland Chatters podcast. Today's show was produced by myself, Danielle Gaines, Elizabeth Sweet and the Maryland Matters staff. You can read our nonprofit, nonpartisan journalism at MarylandMatters.org. And don't forget to sign up for our daily newsletter. Thanks again for joining us for some chatter that matters.